0: Hello, it's nice to be here. Um, We're in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and this is the Gospel Works On um, series. The Gospel Works On unity is what we're looking at. Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll read verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, would you turn our hearts and minds to you? Would you open our hearts and minds to the gospel and to your holy word? Anoint the preaching of your word. cut out vain ambition and cut out error. Help those by your spirits who are struggling with distraction, whose hearts are heavy with things that will happen later or tomorrow, or whose minds have a hard time being held still and Have a tendency to roam, would you bless them with your patience and feeding them and your fatherly instruction? Would you feed us with bread from heaven and would you give us life in you and grow us up into conformity to the head who is Christ Jesus? Would you equip this fellowship and the other gospel-believing Christian fellowships in Camden to be salt and light here? And would you rescue Camden and Belfast and the state of Maine from the trajectory that it uh, appears to be on in this country? Would you have mercy on us and give us your spirit? That we would not get what we as a society may say we want, which is to be left alone by you. But would you not leave us alone and would you quicken us to life and would you impose yourself upon us? Would you be merciful to the people who are present rebel against you the way you've been merciful to us? Keep us from spending our lives on ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, providentially, the two of the passages that were referenced this morning are passages that we'll look at today and that tie into what, um, what I believe the Spirit says in this section of the Word. What Chris said just at the end of the singing about our, our bodies becoming echo chambers, that the whole thing, when we sing to God, when the heart and the mind are actually directed towards God, because that's singing God listens to, not beautiful singing, not aimed at him, and not, um, not, um, he doesn't close his ears to bad singing that's aimed at him. But that uh, he's reg- registering the intention of the heart. And that he desires that we would actually turn our whole bodies and our movements and our being towards him. And that's pleasing to him. And that's a life, a body that's dedicated to the glory of God. When we talk about unity in our passage today, just uh, real quick before we go into the text. There may be times when this text needs to be preached and the focus should be, and therefore love one another. And um, that could be an application from the text, and that would be appropriate. And if you were in a church, say, where um, people hated each other, or where if you were in a church, a Baptist church where all you guys did was make Pentecostal jokes or, or anti-Anglican jokes or something, then um, that would be necessary that we spend time on that. And you guys don't strike me as people who are um, at home coming up with anti-Anglican jokes. So, uh, um The heart of the text actually is on Jesus Christ and turning our minds when we think of unity onto the torn body of of Jesus. And that, I think, is actually the primary thrust of the passage. And that's what we'll look at today. And the blessing in this is that it can strip us of empty, vain and cheap forms of unity, which are built on human inclination and human reason. Great movements in history, apart from being built upon the blood of Jesus Christ, are actually seen as eternally ineffective. They may have momentary um, bright spots, but that's not what we're aiming at. We don't want peace on earth that is not actually built upon the torn body of Jesus Christ. That's peace on earth. And so for us... Every attempt to build, to grow harmony, love, unity, peace on earth is actually furrowed into the body of Jesus Christ. That's where the work is being done. That is the foundation. And that's what Paul is saying. The Holy Spirit saying by Paul in the text today. With that, let's go right in. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called, quote, the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, by that he's slamming them. He's saying that those who are called the circumcision, meaning that they are the circumcised, there's this spiritual affect they have of superiority. There's this idea that what they have in circumcision, since that's the object of their faith, what they have in circumcision is spiritual status, as if it were something that was done in heaven. And he's reminding them, this was an operation they did at the hospital eight days after you were born. Don't forget that because they're lording it over you who have never been circumcised. You've been called this uncircumcised group as if that relegates you to some other category. And we know in the past it did. Right. And he's acknowledging this. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god in the world but now in christ jesus the new era in christ jesus you who were once prior to christ you would have been kept out you who were once far off have been brought near how by the blood of jesus So, first and foremost, we're taught in the word of God that unity, that great hope of every lover of mankind, unity is not something that God talks about as being accomplished apart from the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. In fact, we know from the whole council of Scripture, disunity is the given. All kinds of disunity. That's the given. In order to understand the nature of the unity that's accomplished in Jesus Christ, we have to hear what the word of God is saying. and We have to hear how scriptures are defining their terms. It's possible to read this passage quickly. And hear that Jesus wants everybody who used to fight with each other to stop it and be friends and get along. Maybe there's not sharp antagonism at Chestnut Street between Jews and Gentiles. Maybe that's not an issue. But maybe there's racism. Maybe there's classism. Maybe wealthy folks look down on poor folks for not making smart decisions throughout their lives. Maybe poor folks look down on rich folks for being detached from the struggle. This passage assuredly speaks to those things, but not in its primary thrust. It's not a lesson, actually, about us tearing down dividing walls. And that's crucial those walls only go back up somewhere else if we tear them down. Whether it's racism or classism or ageism or any other kind of divisiveness, if the work of unity is not acknowledged as being accomplished in the crucified body of Jesus, then the basis of unity is going to be humanly derived. And therefore it's subject to decay If not a greater form of unrest and divisiveness in its wake, you need only go as far as the headlines to see this playing out all around us. In this passage, we're not being told to advocate for unity. You're not being told to promote unity. You're not being told to work for unity. You're being told that unity is a work that was accomplished and finished in the body of Jesus crucified. Alone. And if it is unity that is not based on that, it is a failed endeavor. We're being called to be thoroughly Christian. When you first become a Christian, sometimes you're zealous. And as you grow and the zeal wears off. What ends up happening is the, the Christian zeal sort of goes back to its room. And there's this, there's this drawer for faith. And you're taught this if you've been to public school or if you watch the news or if you're a good citizen and do what you're told. You keep your faith separate from the public sphere. Because it's not allowed in the public sphere. It has nothing to do with anything else. It has to do with the upstairs room where you keep all the thought stuff. Jesus, Santa, God, transubstantiation, whatever you want to think about it stays up here. It has nothing to do with your hands, has nothing to do with politics, and it has nothing to do with the real world. And as long as you keep it in the fairyland, you're allowed to have it. But you're not allowed to live it in front of other people. And you sure are not allowed to tell other people that all men everywhere must repent because God is their God and they owe allegiance to him and will be judged by him. That's not allowed. And oftentimes new Christians, when the zeal wears off, they allow that faith to sort of go back to its bedroom, to its faith room. And then we live in places where the faith room sort of has rises and falls. I'm encouraged, I'm excited about the faith, but, but still it may not touch other areas of our lives. It's possible to sort of see vestiges and remnants of Christianity and of faith inspiring moments out there in the world like unity. Well, this um, this racial unity, it's not based on Jesus Christ, but it's close. It's close. And the Christian is actually called to something much higher. Racial unity, class unity, harmony. Is supposed to be something that we value, but that we value it enough To actually have it based on Jesus Christ's torn body so that it will last. And that we would not compromise and say, well, it has nothing to do with Jesus, really. This is a societal thing, and we've got to figure this out. By what authority? By man's authority. Your authority is either God or your authority is human autonomy. You don't have any other options. How you're figuring this out and the standard you're using to say, we'll get this done, is going to be the demos, the populace, the people, or God. And you'll end up with two different things, regardless of, of how often they can be sketched as looking close together. Unity is accomplished by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. It is accomplished in his torn body. The Christian has to kneel to this. Because then the unity we preach and we live will be rooted in the blood of Jesus Christ. And everything that is in Him will not go away when other things go away. It will be, it will last. When the judgment comes, things that are in Christ actually stay. Other things get sent away. The central issue in this passage is actually the accomplishment of unity through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the target audience here, here first and foremost, is the unity between those who are in Christ. And as we'll see as we work through here, this matters because that is the foundation place, that's home base from which we operate in the world. And if we go out into the world and we're preaching, oh, peace, peace, and unity, unity, and there's divisiveness in those who are in Christ Jesus, you have absolutely nothing with which to work in the world. This is the offensive implication that no other unity will actually do for the Christian. Paul is speaking firstly to Gentiles who have historically been outsiders. By outsiders, we mean outsiders to What? Outsiders to the inside of society, yes, in Jewish culture, but that's not what he's emphasizing, that they've been kept from being thought of as being insiders, being thought of as being, hey, you're with us. It's not just that they're outsiders to Jewish society. They've been kept from things, and he lists those things. Gentiles formerly were kept from the commonwealth of Israel. God has a people on earth. And this people group called Israel, it's still called Israel, it's just opened up to the entire world now. God had this people group. And you couldn't be in it unless your other identities died. In every way. They were kept from the covenants of promise. Every time God says... I'll take care of my kids. As for my kids, I'll get, I've got their back. If my kids are walking in my ways, I'll fight for them. That wasn't true of Syria. That wasn't true of Egypt. Egypt and Syria were kept from those promises. God was not going to fight for them. They were kept from union with Christ, Paul says, and eventually, inevitably, they were actually kept from all hope. But we're told that those who trust in the blood of Jesus Christ have been brought near. And we're going to be given a description of that nearness and what that nearness entails. And so, because it's a few verses later, for the sake of clarity as we move forward from here, let's go forward and retrieve the definition of nearness from verses 17 and 18. People who were far off. That's Gentiles. People who were far off and people who were near Jews. They had all these things are both brought near. So there's two bringing near. There's two nearness being talked about. One is the Jews who already had these things. They were close to them. The other is the nearness that both Jews and Gentiles were brought into. So it's not that the Jews were near and the Gentiles were now matching pace with the Jews. It's that both people had to be brought into a nearness that neither of them actually had apart from the thing that brought them into the nearness. So nearness is used in two different ways. They're brought in deeper, newer. Same kind of way, a way that even those who were near needed, though. And that's what makes Jesus' ministry so offensive to the Jews. He was suggesting that the unbelieving members of Israel had access, had the promise of the covenant. They were covenantly bound to God, even though they might not be believing, even they might, they might not be elect. But they lacked something even still. What's the newer and deeper way? Verse 18, they both now have access in one spirit to the Father. This is faith in Jesus' work on the cross. Now, new era. This is a new era. At one place in Hebrews it says that when he ripped the veil, it was a symbol of him carrying time This is a new day. And this is precisely where the accomplished unity on earth comes from, the efficacious blood of Jesus. That's the basis for all human unity. Everything that rises must converge, and everything brought under the blood is clean. Equally clean. The church is to be thought of as different kinds of people being brought together into a oneness covenantally in Jesus Christ. This is, this is an analogy of marriage. It doesn't say it plainly, but all the language is being used. Stop being divisive. Stop being divisive if God has brought these things together and made one thing out of the two. That's marital language. That's because God's covenantal language is actually set up in a model prototype that we call marriage. That's why all marriage is to be treated by the Christians as this sacred structure that preaches the gospel and when we are rearranged the parts of that we are making theological statements about god that aren't true that's why it matters god's brought outsiders and insiders together into covenant and he's processed them into a new singular unity and the apostle officiates this warning that what god has brought together let no one put asunder that's the language That's why he preaches in the letters over and over. You guys, are, mom and dad are getting a divorce. Not on my watch. This was a Christian marriage. That's the kind of language he's using. Disunity in the body ought not be. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments, in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Here's the understanding that is tightened now. It's not that Christianity or even Jesus Christ himself incites peace. That's true. But there's a scriptural ordering. Christ himself is our peace. He is our peace. That's more foundational, and that's the language that will be used, than simply inspiring peace. He's not the spirit of Christmas. He's not something that every time he rolls around, we go, you know what? I just like whatever's in the air. Let's bake gingerbread and let's bring it to the neighbor's. Let's stop fighting, at least for this week. That's not what's being preached. He is our peace. He is our peace. And we have union with him, which means we're put at rest. We are at peace. And because of that, we now have to live out of base camp differently in the world. And that starts with the relationships in the church, because that is the body. It's a disorganized person who doesn't know how to live in the body, and thinks that their true self is somewhere out there. That's a disorganized, confused, not healthy person. God uses the body analogy on purpose. It starts with understanding who we are at the core because of Jesus Christ. That's our substance and the foundation of our being and our identity. Christ himself is our our peace. And before we're too quick to think of his peacemaking as an event that took place through one Christian being so moved by the fact of their being brought into peace with God, that they pay it forward in relation to those people who used to be their enemies, which is well and fine in the practice of Christianity. It is not the scriptural basis for harmony, for peace between human beings. That is the torn body of Jesus Christ. And it is nothing else. Not works of righteousness, which we've done. That's bankrupt unity. Not paying it forward, not forgiving attitudes, but the breaking down of the dividing wall of hostility. How? In his flesh. That's where the dividing wall of hostility got broken down. And that's the basis and the only basis of peace between human beings. Now, think for a moment about the greatest event in human history. Love. Championed by everyone of every era, the world over. Love is the motivation for saying, the motivation for changing. In the economic ordering of love, the scriptures tell us that had not God loved us, in Acts, which is most expressly, we're told, in the torn body of Jesus Christ, First John 4.10, And this is love, not that we've ever loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for us. That's actually happening on the cross. The sacrifice bled out and ripped open, exposing what is in to the outside world. That sacrifice of Jesus Christ in his death. If you want to know what love is, don't look back to your marriage, your wedding album. If you want to know what love is, don't, don't put in your Justin Bieber CD. If you want to know what love is, you don't put on love actually. You actually turn your mind to the cross of Christ, and it's the bloody, naked Lamb of God. The flayed human being on the, on the cursed tree. And God says, if you want to know what love is, Don't pull out Tennyson. You look at Jesus Christ, flayed on the cross, and then you'll know what love is. Because love doesn't start from your Christmas spirit. Love doesn't start from your good ideas, or the tingly feeling that you get when you're around him or her. Love starts from God saying, they will, they'll be lost if we don't intervene. They're valueless, but if we place value on them, they'll be valuable. It starts from God toward us and no other direction. No other direction. Or again, First John four nineteen. We love. Fill in the blank. Because He first loved us. We love. Because He first loved us. Had God not loved us, this tells us. Had God not loved us, Had that event not happened, heaven to earth, God loving us, putting love on us, had God not done that, which we just read prior is shown most clearly in the crucifixion of Jesus, had that not happened, it doesn't say we never would have had an an example of perfect love. It doesn't say you guys would have loved the wrong things. It doesn't say, you wouldn't have known how to love God back as ferociously as he deserves. We're told, you wouldn't have love. You wouldn't have loved your girlfriend. You wouldn't have loved pizza. You wouldn't have loved the trip to France. You wouldn't know love. You would not have love. Love is on earth because God sent it to earth. In the torn body of Jesus Christ. That's why humans get to have love. It's all borrowed capital. Every pagan, every new atheist, every Buddhist who thinks that, that love is somehow belongs to them and their personal individualized expression, they're borrowing capital from heaven and they're spending it freely on the rebellion. They don't have any idea. It is borrowed Capital, God put love on earth, most clearly in the torn body of Jesus Christ, and he lets people spend it freely on their own vain and selfish desires. And people don't know, they would have never known any kind of love. Not the love for your kids, not the love for your grandkids. You would not have known love if God had not loved you. We love because God first loved us. The love was given to the human race in the act of God loving us. And in the same lesson, it's the same lesson that we're learning about unity. The rending of the flesh of Jesus Christ, the rending of his flesh, was the wrecking ball that tore down walls of hostility, division. Unity was made. Brian said this, you break things and make it bigger. Absolutely. Unity was made by dividing. This is how God made unity on Earth, by dividing the flesh of Jesus Christ. Unity was made by in Jesus Christ's body, a division being made. And the division that was made in Jesus Christ's body accomplishes on Earth. Now, you have to know this if you become a Christian. Even, even if you don't remember what day you said the prayer or anything like that. If you've become a Christian and you actually trust in Jesus, you know this. the kind of husband you would be, the kind of wife you would be, the kind of father, the kind of citizen you would be is different. And you had to have imagined what you might be had not this been accomplished in you by the Holy Spirit. Peace is made because of what Jesus did and accomplished in his body. And it is expressed in you. So when we look and we say, I'm fill in the blanks. Try, think of a moment in which you act like a Christian. In which you decide to turn the other cheek or respond with evil, with, to evil with love. Or you decide to be Christ-like ever. Have you ever, ever, ever done it once? Think of that moment for a minute. What might, have it, been, what might it, it have been apart from the accomplishment of Jesus in his body? It would have been a moment of disunity. But the moment was different because of what Christ accomplished in the division of his body. His division is our union. And that's what's being preached over and over. Christ accomplished in his flesh what could only be done by him. The atonement for sin for all those who trust in him and the destruction of death itself by his death on the cross. Christ is the Lamb of God whose death takes away the sin of the world. And since the wages of sin is death, it is the death of Christ that is the undoing of sin and death for all those that are in him. In him. This work is unique and glorious, but it even goes on in greater detail. The ceremonial laws created two different people by default two different kinds of people. There were those who were allowed to come close to God and there were those who were kept away. God's presence, honestly and truly, was in the Holy of Holies. Levites and priests were kept further out than the high priest. Most men were kept further out than the Levites. Women, further out than the men. And Gentiles kept furthest away. Gentiles who might Be interested. I want to be near him. And you know there were those God-fearing Gentiles. I want to be as near as he'll let me. It's part of the reason for Jesus' anger and his cleansing of the temple. By filling up the court of the Gentiles with merch tables and Jews, they've made it impossible for the Gentiles to come even as close as they were allowed to. By fulfilling the ceremony and ultimately tearing down the temple which Jesus actually claims ownership of. That was me. He is said to have initiated a new kind of project, a final Adam project with a new line of progeny, a new high priest, a new temple, a new order of priests made in his non-Levitical likeness. Jesus is from Judah, not Levi. It killed the hostility in his body by making peace and bringing all those who are in him to the Father in one body with him. And he is the head of that body. The basis of human peace is the crucified Lord. And we cannot forget this. Because a foundation, that is mutual philanthropy, respect for the image of God in others, brotherhood of man, those are good things. But for the Christian, if that is the foundation for unity, it is specifically not going to procure peace on earth. That's a cross-shaped foundation. And only one can occupy it. We must not be ashamed of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ in our working in Maine, Camden, for peace, That would bless this society. We cannot be ashamed of Jesus Christ being the only answer. We cannot mask him under sort of uh, a family of earth kind of language. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So again, in closing, working our way into this last couple points, Christ is now declared as the preacher of peace. The preacher of peace. The prince of peace. Peace on earth and goodwill towards men with whom he's well pleased. For two kinds of people. Those who were far off and those who were near. Both were in need of peace and both are now recipients if they come into union with the Prince of Peace. Now, we can transfer this to our day. Church folk. I told you my dad's a pastor. I was raised all over Maine and um, other places. It is universal that there are people all over the state who say, are you? Who do you think you are? I've spent one hundred and ninety five years sitting in this pew. I've been in this church since the very beginning. I've gone to if you ever suggest that someone actually needs to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, confess their sin and trust in him by faith. I've sat in Sunday school classes while people argued, my husband put the roof on this building Has he bowed the knee to Jesus? Who do you think you are? Right? That's universal. Your being near the things of the Lord is as useless as if you were far away if you don't trust in him. Doesn't matter if your name's on these windows. Your being near is useless if you are not cleansed by the blood, by faith in him. And that's offensive. In our own day. In coming into union with Christ, the disunity is abolished between the former variables. They've merged into a shared likeness with the icon of God, Jesus Christ. Paul then transitions the same theme further into the architectural analogy. People who would have existed in an us-them mindset are now merged into union with one another, in their union with Jesus Christ. They live together. They're citizens of the same kingdom. They share allegiance to the same king. Jesus himself did not only build this city, but he built it on his torn side. He himself is the very cornerstone. That means that the work of the building of the temple of God, the new city, the city of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion, these languages that are used in it, these terms interchangeably for where God lives with his people. Hebrews says, you're there. You've come to it. You didn't come to a mountain you're not allowed to touch. You've come to the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the city of our living God. You've come to it. This means that the work of the building is done at his expense. The weight is actually put on him. He's Atlas. The whole city is built on him. All of it. Where was this done? It was done on the cross in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a temple, a holy temple in the Lord. That's his body. Where is Christ building the temple of God? In whom the whole structure. Wait, where's the temple? It's inside Jesus Christ's torn body. In Whom? The whole structure. Not in what. Not where. In whom? Do you believe this? Is this actually what the Bible teaches? Does Jesus think of the city, the kingdom, the temple, the household actually existing inside of him? John 2, verse 18 to 21, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. He was speaking about the temple that is his body. The things of the Lord seem to work on a vertical horizontal movement. It's a sign of the cross everywhere. The first tablet of the law concerns the vertical relationship between us and God. Have no other gods. Do not take his name in vain. Do not make an image to worship it. Honor the Sabbath and honor your parents. The fifth commandment transitions us from the vertical relationship into the horizontal because our parents are the first mediators between God and man. They're the image of God mediators and we learn how to honor God by honoring them as we see in Deuteronomy and Ephesians. The second tablet has to do with the horizontal relationships. Each other. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. Jesus says the whole law actually hinges in this same manner. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love one another as yourself. And we can keep going. The love that a husband is to have for his wife is based on the love that Christ has shown him. Now you love her. He's loved you. Now you love her. Most acutely, we're told this is shown in the accomplishment of the crucifixion. Everything related to love exists on this vertical, horizontal intersection. We love one another's implied, but even in our reciprocated love towards God, we love because he first loved us. Wives, submit to your husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. Why? Because the church submits to Jesus this way. Human creativity, selflessness, missions, everything, all these things exist between us horizontally because... They've existed vertically first from God towards us. Creativity, love, missions. In today's passage, we've been shown that Christian, that Christian unity works on the same algorithm. Notice where the unity begins. It's not first between family members or neighbors. Our foundation for racial reconciliation isn't Martin Luther King Jr., Jesus will sometimes actually bring a sword in the middle of family members. In the middle of earthly relationships. He does not bring a sword between members of the kingdom. It's necessary to know this and to meditate on this and to be changed in light of this so that we can transition from citizens of the kingdom of God who should know better but are futilely working on developing a kind of peace on earth that's rooted and grounded in something other than the death of Christ into being people who believe that the torn body of Jesus Christ is the foundation for peace on earth. This should begin first and foremost in the church, with the church. But when the church practices this, it is a witness to the watching world. And the Bible assures us that is your best investment of evangelism that you could possibly make. You've no other hope. You've no other resource. You have no other option for true peace on earth other than Christ crucified. It must begin with the church. But here's the word of God. It will not end there. John seventeen twenty one. I pray that they may all be one. Christ speaking. As you and I, Father, are one. As I am in you and you are in me that they may be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Successful evangelism. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. and um, Embed it in our hearts that we would love you, that we would not sin against you. Increase our esteem and our love for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you for loving us